Hey everyone, I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, a podcast for InterVarsity alumni. Life after college is hard, and even a great experience with your InterVarsity chapter doesn't shield you from the challenges of transition. As we hear stories from real alumni learning how to make it in their post-InterVarsity reality, my hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is After Four, the podcast for InterVarsity alumni, and I'm your host, John Steele. So after a few weeks of revisits, we are back with a brand new episode. It is jam-packed, and I don't want to talk your ear off beforehand, so let's dive right in here. If you didn't know, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, the kickoff for Lent, and I'm guessing most of you have heard of Lent, but if you're anything like me, you may not know much about it. My hope is that this episode will help with that. Today, I'm joined by fellow InterVarsity staff and my boss, Jason Gabery, and we're going to discuss Lent, its purposes, its origins, how you can participate in it this year. You're going to hear me use this word a number of times throughout my conversation with Jason, and I'll use it right here as well. I thought this was fascinating. Maybe I'm just a nerd. Even so, I think you're really going to learn a lot from this episode, and I think you will walk away from it feeling better prepared to step into this Lenten season. All right, let's go. Here's my conversation with Jason. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. I'm really glad that you're here today. I'm glad to be here too. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, maybe the most important thing for people to know about you and me is that you are my boss and that we work <laughs> together. <laughs> but I want to recognize that there are other facets to your life as well. So, hey, tell us just a little bit about yourself, Jason. Sure. I've been working with InterVarsity for 25 years as a campus minister, as an area ministry leader, as a regional director, and have been working in this exciting new alumni space for the last year. I'm the husband of one wife and the father of two daughters and still love working with InterVarsity, love InterVarsity's mission, love the work that we do on campus, and increasingly the relationships that we're able to build and sustain off campus. So tell me just a little bit more about that. You said you work with the alumni department. You're the director of the department. Since we have you here, and since this is a space for alumni, tell us a little bit, what are your dreams for the alumni department and how it serves our alumni? That's a great question. I think about InterVarsity primarily as a way of following Jesus. Maybe not everybody thinks about InterVarsity that way. Maybe people think about it primarily as a community of friends. And it is that. I think of InterVarsity as a way of following Jesus, a way that centers around four big ideas. The Lordship of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, and we respond to the Lordship of Jesus. A love for and an engagement with Scripture that nurtures our faith and directs us in how to follow Jesus. A desire to have healthy, missional, cross-cultural cross-difference relationships that are honoring and glorifying to the people involved in them and to the kingdom of God moving forward, and a response to God's call in the world, whether that's a call to 
global missions, or that's a call to local service in a vocation or trade or parenting and marriage, whatever it is. And so that is a way of following Jesus, a way of being in the world with Jesus. And my hope in the alumni department is that increasingly we teach students how to start on that way with Jesus. And then over time, as the alumni department grows and our engagements grow, we want to find exactly the right places where we can help support now alumni as they continue in that path of discipleship. And so we're actively looking for the best ways to do that. We want to learn from our alumni, even alumni who are listening to this podcast about what they think is the best ways for us to do that. We've got some ideas and experiments that we're trying, but ultimately when the department is thriving, what we want to be is a community of relationships and resources for the sake of the university church and the world that is really helping alumni of InterVarsity stay on the path of discipleship they started as students. So it sounds to me, then you would be under the impression that our alumni might graduate from college, but they don't graduate from InterVarsity. That's absolutely right. I mean, you don't graduate from Jesus either. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lord. (laughs) If if InterVarsity is primarily, as I'm thinking about it, primarily an introduction into a way of following Jesus, if we are a community following Jesus together in a particular way, then that doesn't end when we graduate. It changes, but it doesn't end. That's exciting that that relationship gets to continue long after graduation. In fact, this podcast that we're on right now started as an idea. Wouldn't it be great if we had a space that we could continue to engage with alumni? And it's been really great. As my boss, I'm glad to hear you say that. (laughs) Everybody listening, you heard it. My boss is happy with how this is going. So, okay. Now, Jason, this is sort of a left turn that we're taking here. But to get to know you more, I could be wrong about this, but compared to many other staff, and I'm assuming many other students with InterVarsity, you have sort of a unique faith community affiliation affiliation, don't you? And if if that's true, can you tell us a little bit about it? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It is true. I come from the Anglican tradition and part of a community called the Anglican Order of Preachers, which is a contemplative Christian community within the Anglican church and tradition. And that community is organized around a life of prayer and study and preaching and community really for the sake of nurturing the life of preaching and proclamation of the gospel within the Anglican context. It's an important part of how I organize my spiritual life in addition to InterVarsity. I've gotten to experience this in a number of ways. One of my earliest experiences was at Urbana 5th. And you were the manuscript leader for the U.S. Student Leaders Track. And so I got to experience the outpouring of some of this training. And that was a huge blessing. I remember being in that space and just being like, wow, this guy knows how to teach and he knows how to bring ideas together to help keep a group on track. That was my first experience getting to see those gifts and that training coming together. And now getting to see it in a space as someone that I work with, it's been a lot of fun. And can I just say that I never thought that I would work regularly with someone who on the other other end of a Zoom call is wearing a habit. That, <laughs> that is a unique and really cool experience for me. For the listeners who might not know, a habit is just a particular type of clothing that is a symbol of the church. And so when I go outside, I'm recognizable as that's a church guy. And sometimes that's really positive. And sometimes it's not, but it often makes an impact. And it's been a source of tremendous blessing. I'll go out for a walk 
or I'll go out into the community and I'll have one of two reactions. Sometimes people are angry at the church and that anger comes out kind of aggressively. And what I've learned to do is stand still and quietly pray for the peace of the Lord. Jesus said, my peace, I leave with you. And I pray that the peace that the Lord has given me will go into the person who's angry. And not all the time, but sometimes you can watch the anger comes out. And then behind the anger, there's a pain that is the emotion behind the anger. And sometimes that pain becomes visible, the peace of God comes, and just the space to be able to vent that, I hope is valuable and good for them. Other times I'll encounter somebody on the street and they will want a blessing. They'll come up to me and they'll say, Father, bless my child. Father, pray for me. I'm trying to get my life together. And what an incredible gift to be able to do that. And so it's been a neat experience for me to practice this more visible and sometimes socially awkward part of the religious community. Jason, as I've already explained in our intro, we're going to talk about Lent today. So are you feeling ready to jump in and discuss Lent? Absolutely. So I grew up in the church and I've been a part of several denominations over the course of my life. And it's a hundred percent possible that I just was not paying attention (laughs) until my (laughs) late twenties, but I really do not remember observing Lent or knowing much about it until really the last five to 10 years of my life at most. So for others who are listening, maybe who find themselves in a similar place, can you just start by giving us a general overview, a general explanation of the season that we're about to step into? What is Lent exactly? Great question. Lent is the 40-day period that the church celebrates between Ash Wednesday and Easter. So it's basically 40 days before Easter and Traditionally, it's been a time of fasting and almsgiving, which we can talk about almsgiving later, but it's been a time of fasting and almsgiving to prepare spiritually for Easter. That's what Lent has been traditionally. In modern times and in more Protestant low church traditions, Lent has started to take on some additional spiritual disciplines. So maybe less fasting and almsgiving and more like a Lenten Bible study or a Lenten devotional readings, or maybe people taking on a variety of prayer practices or devotional practices because it's Lent and they want to do that. Can you tell us just a little bit more about the origins of Lent? I mean, it must have come from somewhere. Where did it come from and why? Well, we know that Lent began to be celebrated in a more formal way around the year 325 AD. And that's a significant year. I don't expect that most of our listeners are church history nerds, but 325 is the year of the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea is actually really relevant today. It is the Council of Nicaea which gave the Western Church the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity that we still use in most Western churches, almost all Western Protestant churches affirm the Nicene Creed, and that all comes from 325. And if you look at what was happening in the church before 325, there's a lot of different practices. And so there's some evidence that Lent was being celebrated in different communities before 325, but you start to see it formalizing around 325. And in the ancient church, part of the reason that this season was formalized in the way it was, was that new converts were baptized on Easter Sunday. 
Oh. So if you read the book of Acts, you'll see people go preach and then they say, who wants to be baptized? And people come forward and get baptized. And that's great and exciting. And some church traditions, that's still the way it works. You hear a message, you respond to the gospel, you come be baptized. But as the church grew, and by 325, you have people going through a process of learning the faith before they get baptized. Catechesis is what it was called, a process of learning the basics. What do we believe about who God is? What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about the faith that we're joining in? And so people who had come to faith in Jesus, they would be a part of the body, they'd be a part of the community, but they wouldn't participate in communion. They wouldn't participate as full members of the church until they were baptized. Easter became a key time to be baptized because for the those who might not think in these terms, baptism symbolizes dying with Christ and rising with Christ. And what better time to celebrate dying and rising with Christ than on Easter Sunday when you're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And so new converts to the church would go through a period of 40 days of learning and instruction and fasting and almsgiving. And it was in part to prepare them for full immersion in baptism and full inclusion in the church as they're getting to be baptized on Easter Sunday. And so that's kind of how Lent formalized in its beginnings. This is fascinating. Can I just say that this is why when you study the Bible, that learning historical context makes a passage come to life so much more and that we have these rhythms and these practices in the church, whether it's Lent or another rhythm that we do all the time. And at some point it feels like we just stop asking questions about why. And then mm. it just becomes this, well, it's just, I, we just do it. It's just part of church. And when you <laughs> share that, it, like Lent all of a sudden has so much more meaning, Mentally, I know that Lent is supposed to be a meaningful time, um, <laughs> but and maybe it's just me. I don't know. But as you share these kinds of things, it gives it so much more power from the beginning. This was a time for new converts to spend thoughtful time learning why they're saying yes to Jesus and what a life of following Jesus looks like and then leads up to a celebration on Easter of new life in Jesus, not just, I mean, not as if just Jesus, <laughs> Jesus rising from the grave. That's not a just moment, but it's not only that, but we are celebrating new life right here in the room with us on this day. These people that have been contemplating this and they are rising with Christ. That just makes Lent feel so much more powerful knowing that information. It, it sure does. And there's a story from a Eastern monastery where the monks are all contemplating and they're meditating and they're supposed to be in silence, but there's this cat, the lead monk is called an abbot and it's the abbot's cat. And as the monks are contemplating, the cat climbs around and purrs at their feet and climbs on them and jumps on them and it's distracting. So somebody gets the job to go tie up the cat so that the cat doesn't climb on us while we're contemplating. Well, ultimately the abbot dies and there's a new abbot, but the cat is still around. So somebody still has to tie up the cat. Well, then the cat dies. And so they get a new cat <laughs> and it's somebody's job to tie up the cat. <laughs> and of course, the idea here is exactly what you said. We can easily just do things because it's the way we do them and forget that there was actually a reason why we started doing this. The reason might be a good one. It might be a bad one, but in the case of Lent, it's actually a good reason. This is fascinating. Okay, well then let's keep going here because I want to know about Ash Wednesday. This is another prominent day. It pops up on my calendar. Tell us about Ash Wednesday. What purpose does that serve in the course of Lent? 
So Ash Wednesday is the kickoff to Lent. And in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon to mark oneself with ashes to show that you were mourning or fasting. This wasn't just true when the ancient church celebrated Lent. Where did the church get the idea that maybe we should use ashes and put ashes on our heads? If you read the book of Job in the Old Testament, you see he is sitting with ashes on his head the ashes don't serve any medical purpose. The ashes that are on his head are to show everybody that he is in mourning because of the loss of his children, because of the loss of his health, because of the loss that he's endured. And so the, in the ancient world, when you were mourning, you put ashes on your head because people lived in much closer proximity than we're used to. We're more, much more of an individualistic culture. And so living in close proximity, if somebody could look at you and they knew you were fasting, then they would relate to you appropriately. They would invite you to the party. Wow. They'd give you more space. They'd create some social distance for you out of respect for the fact that you were mourning. And so that's where this kind of idea comes from. And since Lent was largely associated with fasting, Ash Wednesday became the chance for the community to say together, okay, we're entering into the season of Lent and we're going to mark ourselves with ash to be a signal to the community that we are entering into this fasting season. I think for modern people, Ash Wednesday can be a really powerful reminder of important themes we don't usually talk about in church. For example, over the last 30 years, there's been a strong movement within some churches towards the positive aspects of faith, towards the more therapeutic aspects of faith, towards the uplifting aspects and important parts of our faith. We talk about being our best selves and living our best lives and overcoming adversity. We talk about revival. We talk about awakening. And it's really positive stuff. And I'm, I think it's great. I'm glad we're doing that. But Ash Wednesday is entirely different from that. Ash Wednesday, someone will mark an ashen cross on your forehead and often say the words, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. We are not talking about that in church on a typical Sunday. Ash Wednesday reminds us of our mortality, that we're dust, we're creatures of dust. And it invites us to humility, to remember that we are mortal. It nudges us towards a way of following Jesus that says, you know, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to leave behind the treasures and trinkets that distract us from full discipleship. And so in the light of eternity, if I remember that I'm a creature of dust and I'm invited to follow Jesus, anything that gets in the way of that, I'm invited to let go, to leave that aside so that I can more fully be present to Jesus. I can be more fully present to a life of discipleship with him. And that's what Ash Wednesday sort of reminds us of. Ash Wednesday shows up for people, even people who don't necessarily have the reminder on their calendar for Ash Wednesday. Uh, Most people know about Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras, if you don't know, it's a big carnival in Louisiana. And it's because it's the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday. And the sort of thinking is, we're going to fast tomorrow. We better feast it up tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So is it Fat Tuesday? (laughs) Fat Tuesday. Yep. And even Fat Tuesday has to do with in the olden days, you'd use up the fat out of your larder on Tuesday because you were going to go into a six-week period of fasting and you're not going to eat fatty foods. So the good fats that you appreciate for baking pies and all that kind of stuff, you use it up, (laughs) use it up now because we're going to fast. I don't 
recommend Mardi Gras as a spiritual discipline <laughs> necessarily, but just to show that Ash Wednesday is a cultural fixture, it shows up in places we don't always expect. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the ashes that are used on Ash Wednesday, aren't they typically the ashes from the palm branches of last year's Palm Sunday, or is that constricted to particular churches or church contexts, or is that a fairly wide practice? Oh, yeah. That's like inside baseball right there. That's really great. Yes. In many traditions, although not all traditions. So some traditions use the wreaths and the greens from the Advent Christmas season. But in my tradition and in a number of traditions, it's the palms from the year before's Palm Sunday that are burned and then mixed with oil and then used for Ash Wednesday. Now, it seems to me that there's some symbolism there. I don't know that I'm connecting the dots yet on it, but these branches that were used to celebrate ushering in the king, the king that they didn't understand, burning those for the ashes that we use to remember that we are dust, remember our mortality. Can you, why? <laughs> why are those the implements that we use in the traditions that use them? Why is that what we use to make the dust? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if I have a great answer. So this is a guess. Okay, let's do it. But I think that the other side of Palm Sunday is that they were looking for the wrong kind of king. And so even in the waving of the palms, you know, it's the same crowd that waves the palms singing Hosanna in the highest, who just a couple days later is saying, crucify him, crucify him. And they want a king. They just don't want Jesus. And on Ash Wednesday, the call to worship, at least in my tradition, is rend your hearts and not your garments and return to the Lord. And it's powerful. And there's this invitation to turn our full allegiance to Jesus, to turn fully to Jesus in his way, to want Jesus more than we want a king according to our own, our own image, our own desires. And so I don't know if that's the internal logic, but that's an internal logic <laughs> that makes sense to me. I agree. That makes sense. Okay. So I don't know if I should feel excited to celebrate Lent, <laughs> something that is about remembering my mortality. And <laughs> But these are the things that background information, this is what it does for me, is that it gets me excited. So, I mean, outside of hopefully just listening to this and being like, Lent is really amazing and I want to participate. Why would you encourage someone to engage with Lent this year? And you've already mentioned some, but let's dig into it a little further. What are some rhythms and practices that could help them observe Lent well? I think anyone who has at least one, what St. Ignatius of Loyola would call disordered attachment. Uh, a disordered attachment is something you love a little too much. It might be like sleeping in or Chick-fil-A or... <gasps> How dare you? <laughs> or the good opinion of other people or money or status or sexual desire or whatever it is that you love a little too much. And what I mean by love it a little too much is not that you love something. We're creatures who are designed to love. We're supposed to love things. We're supposed to love people. But when we love something in a disordered way, we love it in a way that keeps us from following Jesus. When I love the good opinion of other people too much, it actually keeps me from following Jesus joyfully. And of course, our disordered attachments stack up on each other. Let me give you an example. So if I have a disordered attachment to success, 
I overwork. And instead of having margin in my day, I'll overwork. And then 6.30 on a Wednesday rolls around and I'm thinking, what's for dinner? And we've made no preparations for dinner. And you start thinking, I'm hungry. I don't want to start cooking now. I'm exhausted. I've worked too hard. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Popeye's and I'm going to get a spicy chicken sandwich at Popeye's for us. And now that's more expensive than it would be to have dinner I made at home. Now there's financial implications. If I get in a habit of doing that, I don't have as much margin in my budget to give and to save and to invest in the things that are life-giving. And then also I'm showing up at the dinner table and I'm exhausted and I'm grumpy and too much Popeyes will impact my health. I love me a good Popeyes spicy chicken sandwich. Don't get me wrong. But you see how a disordered attachment to success leads to other disordered relationships. I start to have a disordered relationship with food. My kids start to annoy me rather than seeing them as an opportunity to build relationships. And so if you have one thing you love a little too much, it keeps you from freedom. And ultimately, the life that Jesus is calling us to in discipleship is a life of freedom. Freedom to fully follow Jesus and fully follow in his way. It's not freedom from responsibility. It's freedom to give myself fully to Jesus, give myself fully to the people that he's put in my life, give myself fully to his work that he's given me. And so Lent is for anybody who has at least one disordered attachment. And most of us have at least one. Some of us have, you know, a lot. So if you have a disordered attachment, you should consider keeping Lent this year. And you should consider it because Lent is kind of like spring cleaning for the soul. What it does is particularly the emphasis on fasting. It declutters our hearts and kind of helps us move toward Jesus with greater freedom. So some simple ways to do that is you can sign up for our Substack. We're going to be creating a newsletter this Lent, and it's going to have some reflections on scripture that will help you do some reflection and prayer and practice Lent this year. That's a simple thing you can do. A second thing you could do is try some simple fasting. Now, the problem with fasting for most Christians is that we try to do too much too soon. Try simple fasting. Try fasting screen time. I'm going to put my phone down at seven o'clock at night. I'm going to fast from having meals out. I'm going to cook for six weeks. I'm going to fast on extra spending. But here's what's important in fasting is that as you fast, you set aside you know, things you're going to set aside from doing. What you would then do is you use the time or energy that you would have spent on those things to pay attention to God. So if I'm going to fast from screens after 8 p.m. this year, I don't just put my phone down, shut my computer, and then just feel grumpy about the fact that I can't look at my <laughs> computer or look at my phone because it's after 8 o'clock. What I do is I put my phone down, or I put my computer down, and I say, okay, Lord, I have this time to be with you and to be present to my family. How should we use it? And ultimately, you find yourself using that time or those resources that you might have otherwise used to do the things that you're letting go of to pay attention to the Lord. So that's second simple practice. A third simple practice is what is traditionally called the examination of conscience. And this sounds really hard, but it's actually quite simple. 
What you do is you take 10 minutes at the end or the beginning of every day. You could do it at the end and the beginning, but just pick one to start. And you keep it to 10 minutes. In the presence of the Lord, you ask first for clarity as you review your day and you review what's happened. And then you think through your day and you ask the question, where was God at work? Where did I pay attention to the love of God, to the gifts of God, to the people that God has placed in my life for me to love? Where did I experience joy? Where did I experience freedom? And you just make a note of those things. And then you stop and you say, wow, as I was brushing my teeth, I had this thought about this person I hadn't thought about in a while. And I had real joy. I got a, and I prayed for them and that felt really good. Write that down. God was at work in me in that moment. And then you do a quick prayer and you just thank the Lord for those opportunities. And then after you do that, you say, where was I resistant to the Lord? Where was I distracted or distressed? or grumpy, or anxious. And you just make a note of it. You don't judge it. You just make a note. Oh man, that person came up behind me in traffic this morning. That was a moment for me. When my daughter said this thing, my first reaction was to get angry. And you offer that to the Lord. And you say, God, I'm, I need your grace in these areas of my life. Ultimately, reflecting on it, naming it, and noticing it, gives me the ability to now be open to the grace of God that was even in that. And so that's what you do. You pray. If there's a place where you need to say, I'm sorry, but mostly you're still looking for how was I resistant to God at work, but God was still at work. And you do that and you keep it at 10 minutes and you go about your day. And then the last thing I'd really encourage our listeners to consider is almsgiving. And I know we talked about almsgiving at the beginning, but almsgiving is a particular kind of charitable giving. I like to describe it as delightfully non-strategic. When we give, we like to think about our values and what organizations we trust and make strategic decisions about how to invest the resources, steward the resources God gave us. Almsgiving is entirely different. Almsgiving is you set aside a certain amount of money to waste on needy <laughs> people simply because God is generous. And I'll confess a secret. I started practicing almsgiving many, many years ago when I was taking the subway a lot. And there's lots of panhandlers on the subway and there's lots of people asking for change. And I thought back then when I started almsgiving that, oh man, I set aside a whopping $14. I mean, it was not a lot of money, <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to have $14 over the six weeks and I'm going to give alms. And I had the darndest time giving all $14 away. Really? I thought, man, I would just be out by the end of the week. And amazingly, as I started giving alms, and another important thing about giving alms is you give it anonymously if you can. You don't make a show of it. You don't ring the bell. You don't wave the money. You don't put it in the plate or the cup that the guy has and say, this is in Jesus name. What you do is you give it as anonymously as possible, simply because this isn't a strategic investment. You're wasting money on people who are in need because God is generous and you want them to look to God as their provider, not you. And over and over and over again, as I practiced almsgiving, I found that however much money I set aside to give away, I'm always struggling to do it. And so I commend that as a discipline to our listeners. Try almsgiving, try setting aside money and just know, just see how you experience that, whether or not you too experience the generosity of God in such a way that you struggle to give away and to waste money on people just out of the love of God. It is always amazing to me. God's math is very different from my math. Jason, this has been fascinating. I feel 
more at least mentally prepared to go into <laughs> Lent. I have some emotional preparation to do, but this really has felt like a great preparation for stepping into this next season of Lent to have more information to inform the choices that I'm making and the practices that I'm stepping into and just the mindset of my personal mindset and the mindset of the community that I'm entering into this with. And that's a great gift. Before we close, any final words that you want to make sure are shared for people? In our tradition, we are invited into celebrating a holy Lent. So John, I want to invite you and I want to invite our listeners to keep a holy Lent, remembering that it is about freedom that as we set aside this time and we set aside anything that holds us up in our walk with Jesus. The point is not abstinence, not taking things away from ourselves. It's creating freedom and space for full allegiance to Jesus and his way. So with that, I invite you and your listeners to a Holy Lent. Amen. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure. Great to be here. What did I tell you? Fascinating, right? For me, this conversation created a much clearer and more meaningful lens through which I can view the historical practice of Lent, our communal engagement with Lent, and my own participation in Lent. I also think having the language of disordered attachment is incredibly helpful. Being attached to people and finding enjoyment in the things around me is part of how I was created. It's good. But if that attachment impedes or competes with my first love, my savior and creator, and negatively influences the way I engage with others, then those things are out of order. Lent is a great opportunity to spend time sorting and reordering those attachments with God. If you're interested in using the Lenten devotional materials, make sure you check out the show notes. You can find a link to the Substack there. Jason, thanks for putting that together, and thanks for joining us today. This was incredibly helpful, and dare I say one last time, fascinating. Hey, that's it for today. Come on back next time and join me for my conversation with InterVarsity alumna, former staff, and author Alice Freiling. We're going to get to know Alice a little bit and then spend some time talking about her new book, Aging Faithfully. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and turn on notifications so you know right when that new episode drops. You can also find us on socials at After4Pod. I'm excited to hang out with you again next week. Until then, see you next time, alumni.